Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. This is your host, Shahnaz Haqqani. Today we will be talking with Dr. Gabriel Saeed Reynolds about his new book, Allah, God in the Quran, published with Yale University Press in 2020. Gabriel Reynolds is Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology at the University of Notre Dame. His other books include The Quran and the Bible, Text and Commentary, published in 2018, and The Emergence of Islam, published in 2012. In Allah, God in the Qur'an, Reynolds argues that contrary to many scholarly and popular claims about the God of the Qur'an as either merciful or vengeful, God is in fact both. Ultimately, however, God's nature is a mystery, and the descriptions of God as both merciful and vengeful are intended to have an impact on the audience of the Qur'an. Through productive comparisons between the Qur'an and the Bible, Reynolds also discusses the common themes and descriptions of God shared by these scriptures, such as the, of course, vengeance and mercy of God, but also divine scheming, God's derision of unbelievers, the idea of a just God, and ideas of God as the father, the ruler, the judge, and or similar characteristics. Other themes covered in the book include heaven and hell, and the fate of sinners and unbelievers in the Qur'an and the exegetical tradition, the idea of humans as having been created in God's image, and the idea of the Qur'an as a literary truth versus a historical truth. The book would be of interest to folks teaching theology and comparative religions, particularly Abrahamic religions courses. Its accessible writing style makes it especially useful for for undergraduates and for non-specialists looking to better understand God in either just the Qur'an or in the Qur'an and the Bible. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Gabriel Saeed Reynolds. Hi, Gabriel. Thank you so much for joining me today uh, to talk about your book, Allah, God in the Quran, which I very much enjoyed reading and look forward to teaching at least some of the chapters in my classes on um, Abrahamic religions. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really delighted to, to be here, and I'm honored that you asked me to have a conversation with you, Shahnaz. Absolutely. So we have a tradition um, in this podcast to ask the author to tell us about themselves, their intellectual journey, um, their journey to the field. What specifically inspired your interest in the Quran and how did this book come about? Great. So um, my interest in Islamic studies generally began when I was quite young. Um, Although I'm not Muslim, um, my mother's side of the family is of Arab ancestry. And so I was interested in learning Arabic. I didn't learn Arabic, unfortunately, from her, so I had to do it on my own. And um, when I was in college, I began traveling in the summers to the Middle East, to Jordan and Syria. And, um, you know, the first thing that struck me, uh, coming from a family that's, that wasn't very religious, um, is the, um, you know, uh, Islam in the public space. And also the eagerness of so many people I met to speak about religion, to speak about my religion, my religious convictions, to challenge those. Um, the great reverence and piety surrounding the Quran um, that I found 
um, among Muslim believers there. And I even remember, you know, just hearing the, the, the call to prayer for the first time over loudspeakers from Moss. And um, it struck me that this, this is very impressive. You know, this is a beautiful tradition that um, deserves study. And then um, as I began studying at, at Columbia, I majored in Middle Eastern studies as an undergrad and learned more about some of the controversies in Islamic studies and specifically um, around um, the Quran and Quranic studies. And as you know, it's a very contentious field and um, that's attractive as well. The intellectual debate and fervor surrounding the study of the Quran. Um, and then eventually when I was at um, Yale, actually my focus was not initially Quranic studies, but it was um, sort of medieval heresiography. So medieval um, Islamic treatises about um, heresy, sex, the fiqh literature um, was what I was working on mostly. But around that time, like right in the middle, um, there was a big controversy about a book on the Quran by someone named Christoph Luxemburg. It's a pseudonym, of course. And um, it sort of drew me into thinking about um, new ways of reading the Quran. I think most people um, had a very negative judgment of Luxembourg's book, but it still added sort of new life into the field. And um, in some ways that, that got me going and, and reading further for my comprehensive exams. And then eventually that was my focus um, once I got through my dissertation. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. So there are a lot of interesting and insightful materials in this book, uh, much of which I hope we'll get to in this discussion. But let's begin with the book's contribution and or its argument. What interventions do you see the book making in our current knowledge of the Quran and or of God in Islam? Right. That's a that's an important question. And um, it, the book, in many ways, I think, does respond to the um, the, the tradition of, of scholarship um, in Quranic studies, Islamic studies more generally. I mean, it's because of my reading really here at Notre Dame in some um, directed readings courses I've done where we've gone through secondary scholarship. And my um, my reading, um, I was especially influenced by reading um, two books, one by, um, by Fazlur Rahman, so his major themes of the Quran, and of course the first chapter is on God, and then a book by Dawood Rahbar, um, as well on, um, on divine justice in the Quran. And they sort of represent sort of two opposite opinions or judgments of the nature of God in the Quran. And um, I, I think this will help me get to uh, hopefully a coherent answer to your good question. But, um, you know, um, Fazlur Rahman really emphasizes the mercy of God. And um, Rahbar, who um, wrote earlier, actually, um, was critical of what he saw as a modern tendency to emphasize only divine mercy. And he held that um, a more faithful reading of the text, faithful in the sense of accurate or precise, is um, shows that God is, is just above all. And, um, and uh, he sort of inclined towards, this is probably doesn't do justice to him, but towards a more Matazali reading of the text, um, that we can um, see that God operates according to certain um, eternal concept conceptions of what the good and the just is. And um, I, I sort of disagree with both of them and um, argue that um, the Quran um, emphasizes equally both divine justice or divine vengeance even and divine mercy. And it does so intentionally as part of its, um, its efforts at, at perinesis or exhortation, um, that the text is homiletic in that regard. Um, and other people have said that, so I'm building on a, a tradition of scholarship. This is something that people like Jacques Jomier 
and um, in fact, Khalifullah um, of, um, of his famous dissertation about the narrative art in the Quran. So um, those were those were sort of influences. But I I I also meant to respond to in some ways um, other works um, which have come out more recently. Muhannad Khurshid, the German scholar, has written a book saying um, that. Um, uh, really emphasizing mercy, mercy, mercy and divine mercy um, in the Quran as um, the almost the only attribute of God in relationship to humanity. And so I mean to challenge that a little bit and to say that um, the, the divine character in the Quran is, is more complicated and more interesting. Yes, indeed. And that's very, very, uh, very well articulated in the book. Um, so uh, before we get to the, act, the more of the meat of the book, I want to get just one thing out of the way here. The book takes for granted, I think, the assumption that God is male or masculine and consistently uses the word he for God. Um, I tend to use both he or she or God just as much as possible. So I wonder if it would have been worthwhile to have a disclaimer about this or some kind of a, some kind of a discussion on this, however brief, given that the gender, gender of God, I imagine, would be an essential starting point. Um, for understanding who God is and what God's nature is. So was this something that you considered in your research, anything that you came across at all? I followed um, principally the tradition of um, of scholarship, which I think is informed by um, the Quran's use of, of pronouns. And I know it's not that simple. It doesn't sort of clinch the deal to say that the Quran uses huwa to speak of God. Um, but of course, you know, for better or for worse, this has become the common parlance. In, um, in English as well, to use he, um, rendering Arabic huwa. Um, so, but I, I think that's a good challenge, Shahnaz, and something for me to, to think about. Um, of course, it's, it's ridiculous to speak of a gender for God um, yes. who um, doesn't have um, human characteristics such as gender. And that's true not only for Islam, but for Judaism, Christianity, and other traditions. So um, that's well put. And I can see how that could contribute to um, simplistic um, notions of the divinity as as male or masculine. Okay, yeah, that helps. Um, and then, so the title of the book indicates that it's interested specifically in God of, in, in in the God of the Quran, but the Bible too appears as prominent, and I think importantly so, um, in throughout 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 the book. Right, so it it sometimes feels like a comparison um, of God in the Quran and the Bible. Can you tell us about the effectiveness of this approach, given especially recent conversations on doing comparative studies of religion, um, the Bible and the Quran and so on? What, what do you think about this approach? And was this, was this as uh, deliberate in, 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 from your perspective as, you, as it came out? Yeah, it was certainly deliberate. That's, a, that's an important um, aspect to underline. So, yeah, w- it, n- no question. Um, so I make no apologies for that. And there's a couple of reasons. One is, I guess, a bit... Um, instrumental or something, not sure what the right term is, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm meant to write this for a, for a general audience, English reading audience, and I wanted it to be interesting and accessible to um, people from Islamic um, backgrounds and people from non-Islamic backgrounds um, who may be more familiar with the Bible. So that can be an interesting starting point. So that that's one, but that's not really the most in, important point. The, the most important point is that, um, my understanding is that the Quran is part of biblical tradition um, in a broad sense. And, um, you know, that I sort of staked my um, all of my research, even previous to this book, on that, on that point, that the Quran is fruitfully read in conversation with the Bible. Um, I believe that the Quran's historical context was one in which um, Jews and Christians 
were um, were an important part um, of society. And um, I think the way the Quran uses biblical turns of phrase, you know, the way it speaks of the camel passing through the eye of the needle or an uncircumcised heart, or the way it speaks of, you know, most of the cast of characters of the Bible shows that um, it doesn't really do justice to the Quran's own illusions to separate it from the Bible. So um, we could speak further about that, but that's something I feel very strongly and I'm ready to debate about. Um, and there's one further point too, which is, I mean, some of the things that go on in the book can seem a little jarring because, um, you know, uh, pe- people, especially if they want um, to see their scholarship advance religious dialogue, would want to underline um, themes of um, of mercy and compassion. And the book also speaks about what I think are just elements of the Quranic God, which um, you, you probably know. So things like divine trickery and divine vengeance. And I, I wanted to make the point that this is not something like the Quran is um, somehow, uh, um, uh, I don't know, has an overly negative or pessimistic view of God. And I want to show that those things are in the Bible as well. So it's it's not a way of um, caricaturing the Quran as um, having this this um, God who's capable of vengeance, that there's plenty of divine vengeance in the Bible, just, just to sort of soften that blow a bit. Yeah, you know, we'll 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 get to that as well um, about how the Quran, the the God of the Quran is typically assumed to be somehow much more negative and harsher and less merciful and compassionate than the God of the Bible, um, because it, it, which even even though we have we have examples of it in the New Testament and the Old Testament the, or the Jewish Bible as well, um, the Quran somehow gets singled out a lot. So we'll we'll talk. I think we'll come back to that question as well. Um, thank you for that. So the. So let's talk about God, right? What is what is God's nature like? Is God vengeful? Is she merciful? And how do we know? Right, that's that's the big question. <laughs> right. So, and I don't think my um, my answer will be up to the the level of of the the question. I, I think it's important maybe to step back just to say that um, this is not a theological reading. Um, as I mentioned before, I, I'm not a Muslim, and so and it's important to remember that. Um, Muslims like Jews and Christians and others, when um, they engage with scripture, it's not simply a question of reading the scripture in some philological way. You read together with your community, together with your social context, um, together with all of your psychological convictions, um, and in the case of the Islamic tradition, together with the Hadith and the whole tradition, jurisprudential otherwise, right? So um, doing theology is not just about reading scripture. It's about this conversation with your community and your tradition. And that's not what I'm doing. So I really don't mean to say for anyone um, what God is truly like. Um, this is the work of, um, you know, an outsider who's interested in understanding the Quran as a work of literature and looking at its what I think is its central character, um, which is which is God. Um, so. But from that perspective, with all those disclaimers, um, from from that perspective, um, the the basic argument of the text is that um, the Quran is a, uh, gives us a personal God who's intimately concerned with humanity, and it's just um, I think again this is something in common with the biblical tradition. But it's important to remember that there's something distinctive about the notion of a God who sends prophets. This this cycle of prophets a God who um, destroys societies which um, oppose him and his messengers, um, a God who shows mercy in nature. So this is a God who's intimately involved with the world. It is not the God of the philosophers. Um, you know, Aristotle thought of God as self-thinking thought or the unmoved mover. 
um, who really doesn't care a damn, um, part of my French, about um, humanity. Um, but that's that's not the case. Um, the, the Quranic God, um, again, like the biblical God, um, cares a whole lot um, and is intimately invested with the choice that people make to believe or not believe, to submit or not submit, to obey or not, not obey. Um, and so it, it, I, I hope that I capture a little bit of that dynamism, that intimate involvement um, of God with, with creation in the Quran. Absolutely. Oh, I was also going to say, respond to your earlier um, answer that you, you speak of the accessibility of this book. I valued that. And I think that that's one of the biggest strengths of the book. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of accessible texts in general, but I think that's a part of what makes it so what would make it so easy to teach in an undergraduate class, um, which I think is where this would be most needed. So thank you for making it accessible like that. Um, All right. So let's see. There's there's a really important discussion in the book also about the fate of the fate of unbelievers in the Quran. Right. Like, are they going to heaven? Are they going to hell? Is there some place in between? Um, and you do a really, really great job telling us what h- historical scholars have said. Some of, I mean, I did not know many of those things that they actually argued whether hell was permanent or not. Um, but I don't know if it's clear in the book who exactly counts as an unbeliever. So who are the unbelievers and how do we know? Right. Great question. Um, I, I, again, I, yeah, my answer won't be as good as, as the question. Um, um, I think it's it's difficult to define Exactly. Uh, of course, the terms um, in the Quran are al-ladhina kafiru or al-kufar and maybe mushrikun. That's another problematic term. Um, so um, and, and the, there's a there's a great difficulty about dealing with the groups who are actually named like the Yehud and the Nasara and the Sabi'un and the Majus, um, who are obviously communities other than the Prophet's own community of believers. Um, because, you know, sometimes in the same surah, like in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Surah 5, we have different, um, we seem to have different judgments about their fate. Um, so, um, but I think looking at the larger arc of the narrative in the Quran, um, you know, the um, the demand of the Quran's God is both to acknowledge God and the messengers whom God sends. Um, and so to to deny or reject one or the other, um, I mean, that, that that's maybe a starting point for thinking about unbelief. What I would add, I don't know if this is the right time to add it, but, you know, the, my conviction is that um, the Quran is um, is open to the salvation of of unbelievers and that there's there's even even though we have descriptions of certain people um, in the Quran who are the people of the fire or the people of hell. Um, but the possibility, um, the possibility that God could forgive is never um, eliminated. And I see that um, that the mystery of of God's um, right, divine right to forgive is central to the text. So I very much emphasize the possibility of wherever the unbelievers are, that they might be saved. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, one thing that I also found um, very helpful was that uh, so the word kafara is, is translated in this in this book as infidels, which is a very common translation of it. Um, but I, I think of it more as sort of deniers of truth once, you know, willful unbelievers and disbelievers or something like that. Right. Which I also saw in the New Testament in, in this book. I wasn't I think the word was something like deniers of truth. I forget what it was, but that was a really great com- comparison, sort of a, a sort of a way to think about how who exactly ends up going to hell and who, who exactly the unbeliever is. Right. So that was very helpful as well. Thank you yeah, for that, I- too. I'm sorry to interrupt. Is it okay if I add a small point? Please go ahead. 
Well, yeah, I was just going to say, you make a really good point. And um, yeah, I think in, infidel in English is charged with a pejorative sense. It's true. It, the, the nice thing about it is it the, the term um, it means lack of fidelity and uh, or the 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 um yeah the 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 refusal to to be faithful and i think that sort of captures at least part of kefira the the thing it doesn't capture exactly is the notion of ingratitude which is also there mm-hmm. uh, so kufr is also the op- opposite of shukr and um so it's tough when you have an arabic word that has these two areas of meaning to capture that with an english word yeah absolutely so who are the unbelievers in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And what happens to them? Right. So the um, it, I think it's uh, it's difficult to map that term onto the Old Testament because I think the category of belief um, in faith is probably not very, very operative or, or fruitful for most of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible texts. Um, uh, there, I think the, the, the notion of covenant um, even that may be a Christianizing reading of the Hebrew Bible, um, but certainly the the, um, the operating principle for m- much of the um, at least the, the prophetical books is um, the special relationship or covenant established by God with Israel at Mount Sinai, um, as as told in the Pentateuch or the Torah. So, um, but but that that doesn't the story doesn't end there, of course, because there are um, in the Old Testament. Um, rich discussions of um, those who want to associate themselves with Israel, those, those Gentiles, that is, who want to associate themselves with Israel. Um, yeah, it, that's a, a whole area which I'm, I'm not very well versed in and I feel is delicate because um, also the notion of salvation, of course, eschatology isn't central to the Old Testament. Um, what's notion? What's I would say for me, my reading of the Old Testament, the central notion is is God's chesed or faithful love to Israel, and um, uh, and the response of Israelites. So those who who don't respond by fidelity to the law given as part of the covenant might fall into the category of unbelief. But that's problematic for the New Testament. Um, these are uh, interesting um, categories. Christ, of course, speaks in the Gospels of, of faith. Um, pistos is the common Greek term. And then Paul develop it, develops it quite a bit in the book of Romans, especially the first part of Romans and Galatians and some other writings. Um, so um, it, there's a diversity of authors in the New Testament. So it's, it's hard to, to summarize, again, from a theological way. You, you could follow a tradition and come up with maybe a more coherent um, definition. But just briefly, because this is already going on too long, um, clearly um, there's the central to the to the New Testament, at least um, in light of the Passion story and the story of the Last Supper, is a, a new covenant that's um, established with Jesus as Messiah, um, and the recognition of Jesus as Messiah um, is is central to to belief. Um, there, there is references. Jesus himself speaks about condemnation to hell, and the parable of the wheat and tares speaks about the the tares or the bad um, uh, the bad um, grass or whatever weeds that will be um, uh, that will be harvested at the day of judgment and thrown into the fire. So there's certainly um, those who are um, uh, will be tolerated now, but will ultimately be classified among the unbelievers and condemned.
One of the reasons I asked that question is that um, you conclude in the book that there are few si- there are few signs of God's mercy towards unbelievers in the Quran. Of course, it's complicated, and you complicate that rightly. But can the believers of the Quran, do you think, be considered as an equivalent of the non-Israelites in the Old Testament? For example, can we say that God loves God loves only the Israelites in the Old Testament in the same way that God loves only believers in the Quran? Would that be a fair thing to say? I feel a little hesitant because I'll probably get something wrong on this because my knowledge of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible isn't great. My sense is that there's um, there's a dialogue within the canon of the Hebrew Bible about that. Certainly in the book of, of Jonah, the point is very strong that God loves all the world, right? Jonah's big fault is that he wants God to destroy the Ninevites. Um, even the book of Job, it's not really clear where Job is set, but it seems to be set in a Gentile place, it's it's not really clear if Job is an Israelite, and yet he's praised for his for his righteousness. Um, so there are definitely, and then there are other righteous Gentiles in the text, like Jethro, Moses, his father-in-law, and things like that. So um, yeah, so that would be complicated. I I would just say, in terms of the Quran, um, there is a tendency to emphasize divine mercy, but we also have these clear passages in the Quran where we hear about those whom God does not la yuhibbu so it, it does not love does not like there may be more delicate ways of interpreting that or more nuanced ways um, but there that's definitely um, a repeated feature in the text um, but the, in in the book itself I make the point that God disapproves of certain groups that's clear or does not like or does not love them um, but I don't think that excludes the possibility that God um, has the right to forgive him if if he or she chooses um, and can do so do so um, so they may be saved after all. Okay. That makes sense. Um, let's talk about God's love, whether for believers or humanity or whoever. Is how conditional or unconditional is this love? There's a lot of really interesting and nuanced conversations on, you know. Basically, God ultimately decides who goes to heaven and who gets saved and who doesn't. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, I think the Quran is clear that we have this almost um, trope or motif in the Quran that um, that is, um, God um, forgives whomever he wills and um, punishes whomever he wills. Um, Jesus is sort of praised at the end of Surah Al-Ma'idah, I think it's verse 118, where he says, um, listen, they are your servants um, if you choose to punish them. And um, if you choose to forgive them, then you are the mighty and the wise. So um, there's there's this notion of no one has the right to limit God's um, ability to um, to forgive or to punish. Um, and that's um that's present at the same time that the notion of um, the demands, the taklif that God puts upon humanity is also present. Obviously, the Quran has um, legal requirements in terms of your relationship with God, in terms of your relationship with, with your fellow human. Um, in the New Testament, um, there is, uh, there, again, is we have different authors in different books, so I don't want to summarize and imagine there's only one, but there, there is the notion of God loving, loving the world, God making the rain fall upon the um, the, the righteous and the unrighteous, 
Um, of course, in the Quran, the rain is given to everyone as well. Um, so the gifts of nature are given to everyone. Um, so I think there's some there's some tension there. I think it would probably be too it would rather be simplistic to say that the notion of love is expressed or articulated in the same way in the Quran and the New Testament. I think it's a more operative category in in the New Testament. Okay. Now let's also talk about divine scheming. One of my favorite parts of the book. Um, very, very challenging theologically, of course, and as a, as a believing Muslim, right? But the God of the Quran, as in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as well as a great schemer, right? You tell us in the book. Can you give us, can you give our audience specific examples um, from the three scriptures, ideally, about divine scheming? And what might this tell us about God sure. or God's nature? Sure, great. Yeah, so I think this is something that's present w- without a doubt in um, both the Bible and the Quran. And um, for better, for worse. And I think all three um, believing communities have reflected on this. And, you know, at certain times um, they have um, believers have praised the schemes of God, that God has ability to um, outmaneuver um, God's opponents or enemies has become something that's not to be embarrassed about, but celebrated. And I think generally it's important to avoid the temptation of um, reducing God to um I don't know, mainly a deistic vision of some vaguely benign force. Um, again, God in the Bible and the Quran is, is personal, intimately involved. Um, so we see this in the Old Testament, I would say most famously in the story of the Exodus um, and God hardening Pharaoh's heart for, for God's glory, ultimately for his glory. And um, he uh, intentionally um, keeps Pharaoh stubborn so that God can be glorified in the end through the drowning of um, the Egyptians in the sea. Um, that That's not just simple judgment, right? There's a back and forth in a sort of scheme that goes on through the story of the plagues. Um, in, in the Quran, of course, this is most famously articulated with the notion of Mekr in Surat Al-Imran. For example, um, I think it's verse 54. There's the famous phrase. I think it, it appears also... Um, elsewhere in the Quran, but in Al-Imran, it's And in that phrase, the notion of Mekr is usually connected to the crucifixion of Christ, which is another conversation, or the um, supposed crucifixion of Christ, because um, according to the standard reading, at least, um, it's God transforms someone else to look like Jesus, and that other person is crucified, so it's a plot against Jesus' um, enemies and God's enemies. Um, and, and then uh, even uh, more interesting is some other vocabulary in the Quran, and I emphasize in the book a little bit this um, expression zayyina or tazyin, where um, both Satan and God have the ability to make bad things look good. So uh, zayyina is something like adorning. Um, and so for the unbelievers, God, um, we see this um, in certain um, certain verses like, I think, um, uh, it's found in um, 27, um, sort of 27 verse 4, where God makes um, makes bad things look good to the unbelievers so that they continue in their sin. Um, so there is this notion of um, this intense rivalry between those who have um, disobeyed God, um, that God doesn't just let them be and wait for their judgment in the fire, but God intervenes in this life. Um, and um, and both in the Bible and the Quran, and opposes them here and now. Um, I, I don't want to go too far. This has gone on too long. But I would just say that I think this is an important part of the Quranic exhortation, 
because the point is, listen, you're up against a formidable opponent. Like, don't take God lightly. He can destroy you and condemn you to hellfire in the next life. And he can also oppose it, oppose you and, and destroy you now in this life. And he can even manipulate things so that um, you, you are fooled and you end up um, falling deeper into sin. So repent now. Believe now. Obey now. I think that's a bit how that whole um, motif works. Hmm. What about God's justice? Is God, is, is God just? And if so, how does the existence of hell, which is a very, very prominent theme in the Quran, support the idea of God's justice? Great, great question. Yeah. So um, certainly theologically, like if you ask um, any mutakallam, any Muslim theologian, um, God is just. The problem is, um, what does that mean, justice? I'm sure you know this, Jannath, very well, of course. But the problem is, um, is this justice in a sense that humans can um, assess? Um, Is there some sort of comprehensible notion of justice by which God can be um, examined or analyzed? Um, and so is, um, does God do what, what is just in other words, um, or the, um, more, um, Ash'ari tendency to say instead that, um, what God does is just, um, and that, um, any, any human notion of justice falls short of what God sees as, as justice. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a problem. And, um, the, the book certainly um, inclines in my, inclines towards the um, the reading of the Asharis of the Quran. Um, I think the the Quran insists that um, God is just. Of course, if, if throughout we have definitions of God as Rahim, Rauf, Latif, um, etc. So he he's just, he's kind, he's merciful. Um, uh, so, but at the same time, we see God, you know, destroying whole cities and um, condemning um, people to hell and um, and we're supposed to hold that intention and so I mean that's what the Ashuris do and commend and I think that um, obviously uh, Ashuris um, had their own agenda and they were motivated by different things other than just um, strictly reading the Quran by the letter um, so the, the, just one last point on this the, the notion of hell of course um, was it is problematic in for both Christians and Muslims. Um, and in the early church, there were notions of um, the salvation or the um, the uh, the cleansing of, of everyone, including the devil. And um, in Islamic tradition as well, and the book discusses that a, a little bit, that, um, you know, even someone like Ibn Taymiyyah seemed to have some problems with the notion of eternal hellfire. Yeah, speaking of which, so... You mentioned that um, the, historically the scholars actually had an issue with the idea of, he- of hell being eternal, but more recently Muslims have come to think of it as more permanent, like as eternal. How did how did that happen? Why did that happen? Are you would you know? Yeah, well, my understanding is that those who opposed um, the writings of Ibn Taymiyyah and then later Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah about the the possibility of the annihilation of hellfire. Um, it, 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 there are some proof texts from the Quran where the Quran speaks of Khalidin um, fiha, you know, that people are eternally in, in it. So they could marshal that. But ultimately, a lot of um, scholars took, took um, refuge in the notion that there was some ijma, some consensus about the eternity of hellfire. And um, 
then it puts you in a very awkward position to go against Ijma, um, to go against the, the cons- consensus view of the community. And even, of course, readers of Ibn Taymiyyah today, so especially, you know, Salafis, um, um, have tried to explain away um, his writings on the annihilation of, of Hellfire. Um, so it, um, it, it, I think it returns to the, the dynamic of whether what God does is just or whether God does what is just. Um, because I, there, there, it is problematic from a rationalizing reading that God would punish people simply out of a sense of justice instead of punishing people for a therapeutic purpose of purifying them and ultimately saving them. So I was struck by the lack of the, the lack of mention of um, at least two very, what I think are crucial points. And I think in any discussion of God in the Quran, the first is that the root word for the word, for the word Rahman or Rahim is Raham, Rahama, right? So it's, which also means womb or the uterus. And the second point is that the word Rab doesn't exactly mean Lord, which is often con- translated as Lord. Um, and in my opinion, a mistranslation of the word, but which, and, and you also use the word, um, the, you mentioned that the word Lord appears, I think, 130 times in the Quran. Um, and you use that to, to argue that this suggests that God loves to rule, right? God, God likes to rule. But the word Rab can also, or it has been argued that it also means, um, given its root word, at least, it also, alternative translations might include something like nurturer or nourisher or caretaker, at least somebody who rules, yes, but with care, right? How did you come across either of these? The word Rahman, Rahama, um, meaning womb, or um, or Rab as a nourisher or caretaker, and so on, in your in your research for this book, and how might this affect the, any 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 points that you make in, you, you raise in the book? Those are really important insights, and um, I, I'm not sure if the book will ever make it to a second edition, but I I, I, I would need to integrate those if it does. Um, but I would say though my um, provisional understanding of both of those terms um, has to do with the historical context of the Quran's origins. So um, I think that at least Rahman, so which, which um, is always Ar-Rahman, right, always appears with a definite article in the Quran, is probably connected to um, the earlier Arabic or ancient South Arabian use of um, of that term for as a divine name. Um, it, it doesn't always refer, um, it's not always used to speak of God in, a, in, in terms of divine mercy. Sometimes when God is acting vengefully, um, God is still called Rahman. Um, but Rahim certainly redounds to, to mercy. Um, there's, there's no question about that. Um, so, and of course, yeah, the root is, um, can be connected to womb. So I think that's an important insight. Um, for Rab, I, I, the way it's um, used, I think is, um, it, it's not right to say it's a calc on, um, on Syriac mar or Greek kyrios, terms that are commonly also translated as, as Lord. Um, but I think the way that um, God is spoken of as Rabb al-Alamin, Rabb al-Samawat wal-Ard, by my reading, um, redounds to divine sovereignty. I, I don't, I, I could see how you could tease out of that a notion of nurturing and caring. Maybe that could be very fruitful to speak, in, especially in an ecological or a liberation theology way. 
I, I could see that. But at least from my provisional reading, um, the emphasis usually in the use of Rab is on sovereignty. So I'm wondering also about the sources that you use for the research for this book. So there's, of course, the Quran itself, its commentaries, both historical and modern. But I was curious why no women who is, there were no women whose engagements with the Quran show up, even in the discussion on the Hur. Well, there are a number of women who are engaged with the Quran that are part of the book. So, I mean, I could, uh, I could name them. Or uh, yeah, so so uh, in particular, when we're talking about the Hur, for example, right? Um, so Muslim feminists never show up in the book. Uh, Muslim women generally just don't show up in the book either. But in with the Hur, for example, I was concerned that the very brief discussion on what women get in heaven is reduced to, and I quote, a widespread opinion says that women will be transformed into young women and thereby please their husbands anew. It's on page 88. So in other words, women um, are, the reward for women is to be the reward for men, which is very objectifying and problematic. So how, so I have two questions about that. How does this help us understand God and God's justice or mercy or lack of, or its lack thereof um, in, in this conversation on the Hur, but also did you did you consider looking at especially what Muslim feminists have had to say on the idea of the hood and what women get and don't get in heaven? Right, I or, think that's probably more that more um, uh, is a more effective critique. I mean, there there are a number of women scholars of the Quran that are central in Quranic studies: Angelica Neuvert, Mary Therese Urvoir, Rosalind Quinn. I could name a number of others who are really central to my research. So there were certainly a lot of um, female scholars who I consulted, but in terms of engagement with Muslim feminists in particular, that's that's true. The book doesn't engage um, principally with their thought, but neither does it engage with, let's say, contemporary, I don't know, um, Sufi or Salafi. I, I don't engage um, other than the section on Khalifullah, um, where um, I, I saw his reading as um, really in conversation with the basic thesis of the, of the book. Um, uh, I, I don't engage principally with um, contemporary debates um, over the Quran, so I, I think that's that's probably a lacuna, something missing in the book. That um, yeah, that you're you're right to point out. Thank you. Sure. Um, let's talk. Let's talk about humans being being created in God's image. You know, I actually, I, for some reason, I grew up with the idea that humans were created in God's image and the hadith right. that it is, I, I just, I, for some reason, thought that it was in the Quran as well. And only recently, when we're talking about this idea of God's image in the, the creation story in the Quran and the Bible, um, did it occur to me that, wait, this is not in the Quran. And then apparently there's all this discussion of, no, this cannot be Quranic and this absolutely cannot be Islamic. So why, if it's assuming that the hadith is true, why perhaps does the Quran not acknowledge that that this is the case that humans are created in 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 God's image. Yeah, that's a difficult question. What an interesting what an interesting one though. I, I think um, the Quran um, has a very interesting anthropology. Its notion of the human person um, is yeah. There's lots of things to say there. Um, the the notion of the nefs um, and the notion of the fitra. So those those coexist, right? That um, humans both were created apparently according to this natural instinct. I think it's chapter thirty, verse thirty, sort of thirty, verse thirty. Um, and there's the notion of the primordial covenant, um, the alestu covenant. You know, where humans acknowledge um, God's sovereignty. 
So, but then there's a lot of language about the nafs, you know, amaratan um, al-su, so that the the soul commands one towards um, towards evil or um, to waswas it um, uh, it whispers to oneself and leads one towards um, towards sin. Um, the Quran also often speaks of of humans as um, uh, sometimes kafur or kafar, probably ungrateful. Not doesn't mean unbeliever, but the human is almost naturally ungrateful. So the the whole anthropology of the Quran is. Um, is interesting, and um, I think um, it, it's hard to say why something's not in the Quran. Of course, it's easier to speak about what's in there. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the Quran does speak of humans as a Khalifa, of course, in Surah Al Baqarah. But the problem is whether that means a vicegerent, which would be something very close to the divine image, um, uh, or whether it means successor. Um, I think philologists are most most. Um, philologists inclined towards successor, although in the tradition there's definitely also the notion of vicegerent. So, um, to maybe finally get to your question precisely, um, I think that um, the Quran ultimately wants to um, emphasize um, uh, humans as um, those who are to obey and submit and love God, um, that that's their principal responsibility. The language of divine image in um, Genesis 1, verse 26, um, is, a per- is tied up with a particular story of creation, which doesn't really appear in the Quran, even though there are allusions to the six days of creation. And so there's just a different thread of discourse going on there, which, um, which is not of the Quran's particular interest. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know, either about this book, about God, um, about your research? Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful for all of these questions. And I guess the one thing I might add about um, the book is, um, and my own conviction about the Quran, is that um, there's a tendency, I think, for scholars of all sorts of backgrounds to um, to reduce the creativity of the Quran and um, to think of it as maybe something like a theological textbook where um, it's just very systematically laying out points one after another that um, you can just sort them out and come up with clear doctrine. Um, Or there's a tendency to um, read um, something uh, literally in the Quran that might be meant um, symbolically or metaphorically. So I think it's um, important for the book's argument to um, uh, acknowledge that the Quran is not just a transcript. It's not a simple transcript of conversations, but that um, the Quran is an active, creative book. For example, you know, when um, the Quran speaks about, has the Jews and Christians say, we are the, we are the sons of God and um, God's beloved. Um, and then it goes on and says, um, then why does he punish you for your sins? That's a very creative move, right? The Quran is um, quoting, apparently, unless it's caricaturing, something the Jews and Christians both say, did they say it at the same time? Like, how did, did they actually say it? And then, um, and then it's making a, a particular argument. But you're being punished. We see you, whatever that punishment was. So you must be sinners and God must be judging you. So the Quran is like, is a dynamic, interesting, creative book. And um, uh, it's um, important, I think, for the book's argument to see that even when it speaks about God, um, the Quran has um, an, an argument to advance and is not sort of um, a simply 
um, straightforward, boring uh, list of divine attributes. I really enjoyed that chapter, by the way. I think it was chapter 10, um, the, the one where you discuss Khalafullah and what he has to say and how what happened to him when he wrote his dissertation, right. um, where he was making a perfectly legitimate and, and safe argument, but that got him in a lot of trouble. Um, so thank you for thank you for adding that. The idea of sort of literary truths versus historical truths exactly. and the Quran is making an argument, which also helps explain why there might be some discrepancies um, and why there are details missing, because the Quran is not interested in that. It's interested in sort of making an argument and making a point about, hey, if you don't listen, this is what happens. Right. So thank you for adding that. Thank you. So as we close, um, it's also our tradition on the podcast to ask our scholars to tell us about any um, current or future projects they have in mind, so we can look forward to you know them in the near future. Thank you. Well, at the risk of self-promotion, I'm involved in a podcast called Minding Scripture, um, which are just conversations about the Bible and the Quran with um, with scholars. So um, that that's something that I'm actively engaged with and excited about. In terms of Quranic studies scholarship, I, I'm yeah I have a number of projects going on. One is about doublets in the Quran, so repeat repeated phrases and what they tell us about the um, the Quran's development or origins as a text. Um, I'm also interested in the in sin, not personally, but sin in the Quran. Uh, and how the sin um, sin is described, and what are the remedies for sin? What does repentance involve? How do you repent? Um, is there some sort of propitiatory offering or some sort of um, atonement that needs to be made for sin? So th- those are some article projects I have going on. Excellent! I look forward to them. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you did too. And I'm sure our listeners certainly do as well. Thank, Thank you. you so, Thank you so much. All right, so that was my conversation with Gabriel Saeed Reynolds on his latest book, Allah, God in the Quran, published with Yale University Press in 2020. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time.